So tonight is about relationships. In general, if I was to summarize the great underlying issue uh, that plagues adult human life and creates so much suffering, it's that we try to solve emotional issues intellectually or as if they're strategic puzzles to play like a game. In fact, the human, each human mind contains distinct personalities with distinct needs, distinct ways of expressing those needs. And the more we try to solve all of those needs in one way, the more we leave ourselves uh, open for suffering and those in our lives will become frustrated and suffer as well. The most basic roots of human personality and human behavior lie in subcortical brain, which is midbrain and brainstem, and those are areas of the brain that are just uh, fixated on survival, getting enough food and, and avoiding threats, in essence, keeping us alive for another day. And I won't be talking about those needs because I, I hope that you're all safe and have enough food to eat tonight. I will be talking about, though, the other two and their relationship. Uh, the right hemisphere of the human brain is wholly concerned with attaining connection with others. It sees the world not in terms of isolated individual parts, but as wholes. It keeps track of how well connected we are to our tribes and to other people. It expresses its needs through physical emotions rather than through words and ideas. It's largely implicit, which means unconscious. We're not aware very often of the workings of our emotional brain. While I'm talking to you right now, you're listening to my words. And if you're looking at any place on my face, you're probably looking most at my mouth, which means your left hemisphere is guiding how your brain is working. But meanwhile, every couple of moments of while I talk, for split seconds, roughly around two to three hundred milliseconds in length, your eyes shift from my mouth to my eyes. And this is done unconsciously. You're not even aware that you're doing it. It's so fast that you don't even take it in. But your right hemisphere is actually guiding your vision to look at my eyes and to see whether my eyes and the tone of my voice and my body language is expressing emotions that match up with the words that I say. We're constantly, all the time, monitoring other people unconsciously, monitoring their facial expressions, their body language, their tone of voice for signs of what we call sincerity or insincerity, for feelings that, of people being trustworthy. And if you've ever met somebody who immediately strikes you as there's something off, it's very often because what they say with their words is not matching up with the expressions that their eyes and body is signaling. There's a discordance between what their intellectual conscious minds of the left hemisphere are saying in words versus the emotional signals that they are sending that they have no control over. And that's the key. Because so much of right hemispheric processing is not only very fast, but also unconscious, we have very little control over it. You've probably had times when you've been very sad due to an experience, and you went into a job, and you just wanted people to leave you alone, and somebody asks, how are you doing? 
and you said fine, but your voice cracked and you felt in the an area your face betray the fact that you weren't doing that well. We've all had that experience where we feel betrayed by our emotional minds. And that's why when we're really doing poorly, we try to hide from other people. Because we know intuitively that we don't have good poker faces. People have to train years and years and years to develop good poker faces so that they can play poker and not reveal, I gather, when they have a good hand. And most people, uh, when they just start out, they have what is called tells, emotional tells that other card players can very easily read. The emotional brain is largely implicit. It signals itself through areas in the body, through emotions. It's actually activated by very subtle neurotransmitters like serotonin, which is what is used today to help fight depression. It boosts our mood with serotonin, and it creates love with oxytocin and vasopressin. Meanwhile, your left hemisphere is very slow, but it's what you're conscious with. It's what thinks your thoughts. It's what interprets the world around you in abstract <coughs> concepts and ideas. It's the part of your mind that tries to figure out every issue as if it's a puzzle to be solved. Generally, the left hemisphere is actually fueled by what's known as dopamine, which is an entirely different neurotransmitter that gives very wonderful, fast boosts. The left hemisphere is what has a shop addictively so that we don't feel our emotional messages. It's what has us purchase cocaine and drugs. It's what has us gamble. It's what has, a, has us go online on Amazon all the time because the left hemisphere feels that if it can just accumulate something in the world, everything will be okay. The left hemisphere doesn't see holes or see relationships. It just focuses on things it wants to accumulate tools it wants to get, places it wants to go, achievements. The left hemisphere is entirely abstract very often. It creates a representation of the world. So it thinks in terms of stories and reputations and money and accomplishments. It constructs an autobiography to make sense of our lives. Your right hemisphere has no autobiography, it has no plans for the future, and it just wants to be well-connected with other people right here, right now. It's the part of the brain that is activating your emotions. So when we connect with other people, we actually need to use our right hemisphere, yet we spend most of our lives using our left. And so we try to solve emotional connections in terms of the left, which means we buy candies to apologize, or flowers, symbols. We give rings to symbolize commitment, or we purchase things, and we uh, talk about how great we think the relationship is going. In other words, we constantly exchange symbols and uh, narrate our relationships in an attempt to figure them out and solidify them, which is entirely the strategic left hemispheric, what the Buddha called the manas, or the head, as opposed to the heart. 
But what does the heart need to really solidify relationships? The heart needs entirely different uh, behaviors and activities and connections. The way we connect as children to caretakers is very similar to the way as adults we connect to other adults to, for a sense of safety and commitment and love. The first thing a child needs is proximity, the sense that the caretaker is there, is not pulling away, is not leaving, is reliably present, and will remain as long as the child feels vulnerable. And so as adults, we need that too. We seek proximity. Whenever there's been horrible events in my life, like after 9-11 or the recent election, <laughs> well... Very often, part of me goes to other people to try to be emotionally regulated through words, have people put things into perspective. But very often, it's just going to a community and sitting around other people, which activates the, right, the emotional heart, the right hemisphere of the brain, which makes us feel safer and connected and makes us feel that we can somehow survive really painful experiences. There's nothing like the tribal impulse to be connected. There's a book by a wonderful um, psychological writer named Susan Pinker called The Village Effect, where she goes over the direct correlation between emotional well-being and feeling connected to other people in proximity. The next thing we look for is attunement, which is the sense that we are meeting someone's gaze. Someone is looking in our eyes, we're looking in their eyes, and we're exchanging uh, emotions that way. And the third thing we need is um, empathy or mirroring, which is the person that we're looking at in some way when we express a painful emotion to mirror it back. So if we're sad, the mother makes a sad face before she smiles, or if we're angry, the mother makes an angry face, or if we're frustrated, the mother goes like this. We're looking for people to empathetically express back to us what our, we're feeling. And if you notice, in all of these three needs, there's no language in any of it. There's no words. And very often, when I've done chaplaincy training for people in hospice, one of the things that is constantly get across is we have this image when we deal with people in end-of-life scenarios that we have to say the right things to them. But actually, the key is just to go, to maintain proximity, <coughs> attunement, and to simply provide an empathetic presence. That that's what people deeply seek the most. They don't seek words. If people express their emotions through words, all they want to hear is those words rephrased back to them. We as human beings don't need solutions, or to be fixed, or to be solved, or to be instructed. And very often, our partners, in an unconscious attempt to get rid of our emotions, not in a mean way, but just because as human beings, we've all been trained by our, by our socialization process that certain emotions are, uh, other people find difficult, so we find them difficult too. When we're around people that are angry, we try to make them not be angry. When we're around people that are sad, we try to make them not feel sad. When we're around people that are lonely, we try to make them not feel that way ad nauseum. 
So when we express our emotions, very often our loved ones have been trained to try to tell us something to make those emotions go away. And while if that's done at the very end of the process, that can definitely help with regulation, if that's all we get, is somebody trying to reason with us why we shouldn't feel the way we feel, it does absolutely no value whatsoever in solidifying the relationship or helping us actually even regulate those emotions. Emotions are only regulated when they are visually met by other people through nonverbal means. I, I look sad, you see me, you take that in, you create an appropriate face that makes me feel tolerated and seen. So if those needs are met in childhood, we wind up in what's known as uh, safe states of being, secure states of being, and we will anticipate that others will do that as well and will be far more explorative and far more capable of expressing those emotions to others and will wind up largely in healthier relationships. Interestingly enough, there's a direct correlation that they found between children who did the strange test, that's literally the name of the test, the strange test, uh, at age one and a half, between the results of that test and when they followed up on those individuals to see whether they could wind up in happy, sustained relationships. There was an 80% correlation between children who had secure relationships with their mother and who had secure relationships with their partner. Now that means there's a 20% ability to shift if you were screwed in that, in that process. So don't, don't uh, worry about it. It's very possible to shift attachment styles. Um, so, uh, if on the other hand we don't get those needs met, we wind up in defensive states with what's called maladaptive coping, uh, essentially we begin to protect or ward off or conceal our emotions, the ones that don't get tolerated and seen by others. We begin to withhold them because we associate those emotions with rejection, abandonment, isolation, vulnerability. So if a child grows up in a family where they don't believe that children should ever be angry, or express disappointment, the child will learn, of course, to withhold those emotions and to replace them with other behaviors. So we'll begin to repress feelings rather than communicating them. We'll present a false self. We'll avoid conflict at all costs. We'll become hypervigilant of those around us expecting abandonment. And we'll hint at our needs rather than state them clearly. Very often people who've had early relational disappointments don't have the ability to or lose the confidence to say, this is what my needs are in relationship. And they just expect others to know and then get disappointed when they don't. So, of course, I just want to emphasize that nobody is stuck in any attachment style. Any attachment style can be... Uh, addressed either through, one, doing the hard work of actually staying in a relationship with a partner who's secure, or two, getting a really good therapist. <laughs> or three, joining a 
a wonderful 12-step support group like SLAA, CODA, etc. So, um, one of the things that adds some problems, of course, is that we gravitate towards people who have similar traits to our caretakers. Well, that's great if you had secure caretakers, but if you had caretakers that were unreliable, unavailable, or at times intolerant, you will largely continue unconsciously to chase after the same type of individuals. Why is that, you might ask? Why on earth, after spending 18 frustrating years managing, concealing our emotions with the unavailable or the rejecting or the critical or the otherwise uh, individuals who constantly try to change the way we feel, why would we then wind up with people who recapitulate similar traits? Well, very easy. It's the same reason that war vets, when they come home, can no longer make any sense of domestic life and re-up, as they say, for another two years of service because their emotional circuits of the right hemisphere, which govern how we relate to other beings, can no longer make any sense of safety and domestic life. So if we grow up in battle zones or in dry tundras where emotions are rarely expressed or in uh, whirlwinds where a caretaker is engulfing and we just want space, we will very often seek the same because all of our coping strategies and all of our expectations will be validated by the person who repeats the caretaker's behaviors. Of course... While that will become attractive at first, over time, once again, we will wind up feeling the same resentments and the same desires to flee that we felt in childhood with our new partners. So, the key to developing healthy relationships, even with people who might reenact uh, caretakers' behaviors, Safe relationships can be developed, but the key is learning to communicate safely and authentically rather than to wind up living in the same maladaptive, concealing, repressing, um, essentially performative personas that we established to survive our childhoods. We have to graduate into uh, behaviors that push ourselves to take the risk to actually express our feelings and our needs rather than to conceal them because everything in our mind expects disappointment. We have to push through that, which is a long-winded way of saying none of this is easy. But uh, it is possible. So... What we're looking for is to be able to communicate with other people in a way where we don't try to fix, solve, defend, apologize, or in any way instruct or shame, but to create a safe space where we learn to listen to other people's needs and to mirror them back, and then we can safely express our own needs and mirror them back. It's interesting that in the research 
that has been done by a whole wide array of different psychologists, Gottman, Hendricks, Rosenberg, Marion Solomon, and on, is that the key to relationships lies not in the compromises and working through of the issues, but it lies in developing safe communication. You might have, with your partner or partners, you might have ongoing issues that are never resolved, and yet you can be in a totally happy relationship. On the other hand, you can be in a relationship where every issue is solved through draining compromises. That's not a happy connection. So it's all about the communication, not about the solving of issues or conflicts. You can have conflicts in very healthy relationships. In fact, very healthy relationships almost invariably have conflicts. Um, so before we start the communication process, we have to check that our intention isn't to fix or solve or to get something off of our chest, but is actually just to communicate, which means to understand our partner's needs and to clearly express authentically our own needs. That's the intention. Not to win an argument, not to make other people see the world exactly the way we do. Very often, fights and relationships boil down to each person has a view of the way reality is, and they're different, and each person tries to convince the other that their view of reality is the right one. And of course, because we all live in our own constructions of reality, we will never, ever be convinced that somebody else's version of reality is right. So the intention is never to problem-solve, not to fix, not even to reach compromises, but is to clearly communicate and clearly listen. Mindfulness, Buddhist mindfulness, plays an enormous role at the very first stage where we check in with the body and we learn to discern if there's this feeling of, I need to get this off my chest. I need to say this right now. There shall be no peace until this is heard from me. And another thing. When you feel that feeling of needing to get something out of you, that's when we don't say a thing. That's when we do what's called the sacred pause. We stop, we go, we attend to those feelings and those needs, and we begin to regulate them. We don't push them away, we don't get rid of them, but we wait until they're at a regulated state so that we're not trying to push our anger onto someone else to punish them. We're not trying to push our frustration or our sadness. We're not trying to get someone to have our feelings. We want to keep our feelings, but we just want to express them in a way that other people can understand. So let's say you've gotten to that point where you no longer absolutely need to have the conversation and you can say when it's possible sooner rather than later I'd like to have some time to speak with you. It doesn't need to be more than an hour and very often it doesn't even take an hour. 
But you want it to be when both people are agreeable. So it has to be an agreement. Now, when you're actually there at the conversation, the first thing to do is both people have to, as a practice, take the nuclear option off the table. Does anybody have an idea what that means? Yeah, exactly. You take off the table the threat that if this conversation doesn't go the way you want it to, that you will break up. The moment there's even the underlying feeling that the relationship is on the line, people will become defensive. When they become defensive, they no longer are open or listening. They wind up reacting to other people's words from a much more vulnerable, closed-off um, space. So to have any successful communication requires, <coughs> at least for the time being, to take breaking up, ending a relationship, cutting off with someone off of the table. So if the other person isn't willing to do that, then already communication is largely going to be sabotaged if somebody brings that up. Two is to set the dedication to maintain attunement, which means no eye-rolling, no showing of contempt, no looking around, and most important, most important, to not prepare what you're going to say while your partner is speaking. Now, that's an obvious human kind of habit that we all fall into when we're at dinners or when we're talking to people and someone says some, something that is either exciting and we feel we have something to contribute or something that is aggravating that we feel is unfair we immediately generally start to rehearse what we're going to say when it's our turn. Unfortunately, the moment we do that, we stop listening, really. We stop taking in the emotions that are being expressed. And we start to send unconscious signals that other people can read that we are no longer fully available. So even though we've trained ourselves and we feel safer rehearsing in our minds how we're going to respond, we set an intention to not do that. And we express that intention to the other person as well. While I'm speaking, I ask that you listen and not prepare, and I will do the same for you. We avoid globalizing language, which is you always and you never. So we never say you never, and we never say you always do this or that. We don't use any globalizing language the correct phrasing for connecting emotionally rewarding conversations is the following. And I know this at first will sound uh, awkward, but as you practice it, it will become natural and you'll find that conversations and connections will go in a much more skillful way. The correct formula is, when you do X, I feel Y. So, when you leave the dishes in the sink, I feel like you expect me to clean them up or that I feel uh, that uh, you don't care about the way the place looks or whatever. When you, I feel. So, you're 
Part of the saying, I feel, is to acknowledge that your needs are subjective, but not to diminish your needs as well. To simply state them clearly. When you do this, I feel that. When we get to the request, then we say, when you leave the dishes in the sink or your clothes all over the floor, I feel uh, I'm cared about. So I'd like to request not demand, I'd like to request that you might consider picking them up or cleaning your dishes or not eating my cereal or whatever. <laughs> and then you finish it up finally with an appreciation at the end, which is, I'm saying this because I'm so happy that we live together. <laughs> it might sound wholly inauthentic and performative, but actually, when we end with criticism, there was something that Kahneman, uh, the great uh, Nobel Prize winning um, psychologist, noted the peak end rule. People do far better when we end with a compliment rather than put the compliment first and then the criticism or the demand second. So what that looks like is in our culture, we're all, we've all heard the statement, I love you, but... <laughs> and you probably, if you've ever heard that, you never remember anything that comes before the but. The only thing your mind runs up with is everything after the but. The criticism, the complaints. When your boss says, it's so great having you here, but... You immediately forget that it's so great having you here, and you just remember everything after the but. But if you switch the order, you're still communicating the exact same thing, but people wind up less defensive, and they wind up actually hearing. So if we say, uh, I would like it if you cleaned up after yourself, and I'm saying that because uh, I really like the fact that we're living together, and I'd like our place to be comfortable for you and for me so that it's a, a place where we can really get to know each other, or whatever. <laughs> so that's the strategy. At the end, what you're looking for is for your partner to repeat back essentially what you said, but in different words. To essentially mirror back, and to mirror as much as possible, if they can do this, this is the graduate course in communication, mirror the feelings that they heard. So the partner might say, okay, I've heard you say that when I leave dishes and clothes around that it makes you feel uncared about and that you'd like the place to be cleaner so that it's more comfortable for you and I hear that it can make you irritated if I don't do that. When somebody says that, you will feel hurt. You will feel appreciated. And even if that person for months afterwards reverts to their old ways, you will still have had that experience of being able to communicate and have your needs met, and that will form a bond that will allow you to express other painful emotions and disappointments. And when you have that, you have the entirety of the tools that can make a relationship sustainable. That really is the fundamental communication. In my experience, virtually, the bulk of uh, relational strife is actually solved simply by creating 
good communication etiquette. So to conclude this for the purposes of demonstration, we need two volunteers. Come on. All right, there you go. Come up. And we need one more. Come on, this will be fun. There we go. I like this. This is a gay couple. <laughs> They're in a relationship. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to express uh, the fact that you are disappointed that he's going to come to the dinner at 7, but instead he came at 9 at the very end. And you're going to explain, because he's done this in the past. Okay. <laughs> What's up, man? <laughs> this should be fun. Uh, let's see, so I guess... You look at the person. Right. <laughs> I'm very disappointed that you were late to dinner as often as you are. <laughs> I hear that you are disappointed with my lack of attendance. <laughs> and I said, what I said was that I was going to be there, and I wasn't there. All right. So, what we just heard is the perfect example of what will lead into an argument. <laughs> so the first thing is, you said, I'm very disappointed that you didn't show up for dinner. I would, what we're trying to get is to which begins to lean towards the, that you're saying objectively it's wrong. And what we want you to do is, is say, when you didn't show up, like I thought you were, or thought you agreed, it made me feel like I didn't care. Okay. And then we want to say something complimentary afterwards, okay. so that he'll be more likely to listen and simply repeat back rather than explain why he was, wasn't there. So let's try it again. <laughs> uh, so when you didn't show up, I felt hurt because I thought we had an agreement, but you're so trustworthy and have been so trustworthy in the past. Um, so, thanks for that. <laughs> well, I, before you respond, that made you feel what? When you heard that, that made you feel... Um, <coughs> that uh, his trust for me was inauthentic. So why was that? Why did it make you feel inauthentic? Uh, it felt like he was just saying it. <laughs> and I'm doing the best I can. Relationship's <laughs> over. Oh wait, we gotta take the nuclear off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're not. All right. No matter tonight. what happens here, we're gonna stay together. Yeah. All right. At least for tonight. One more time. <laughs> One more time. Try to say something that that feels more authentic, and we'll. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll go from there. All right. Um, so, it hurt my feelings that you were late for dinner. Um, and, wait, what was the thing? Sorry, what's the format again? So it's, uh, what happened? Okay. What it made you feel? Okay, so, you were late, and it didn't make me feel good. It really hurt my feelings. And, uh, you know, like, I care about you, and I want to work this out. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. And what would you now? You repeat it back. Um. So I was late. That's what I did, and I said I was going to be there on time, and it hurt you, and um, and you really care about me, 
and that's why you you'd like to work this out. You'd like to talk about it rather than you know pin me against the wall and yell at me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that's as much as we could hope for with this. So for the first part of the meditation, what we're going to do is we're just going to try to keep in mind an object in awareness. And that's uh, the way in spiritual practice we develop a settled, peaceful mind. So, for example, the breath, the sensations of your body breathing, is an excellent example of an object to keep in mind. You don't have to keep it as the only thing in mind, other thoughts, memories, other physical sensations. Other impressions can arise and pass, and that's all okay. But so long as you know whether you're breathing in or out in this moment, or whether you're pausing in between an out-breath and the next in-breath, or you're holding your breath. If you know what state you're in, you'll have just enough detachment so you won't become hooked by your thoughts and pulled away into, yanked about. What unsettles the mind, of course, is all the content that the mind can create, the fears about the future, the recitations about the past, fantasies about the way things could or should be. So again, you don't need to push anything away. Just know whether you're breathing in, breathing out, or pausing. And a way to do this is to Think one, while you're aware that your body is breathing in, you feel the expansion maybe in the chest or your belly, or the air moving through the tip of the nose, and you just think one. And then as you release the breath, think two. And as you start to breathe in again, think three. And as you release the breath, think four. And then arriving on the next in-breath, think five, and then start counting back down, four on the next out-breath. And so forth. So you're counting from one to five and back down, over and over. Now another practice is just maintaining awareness of the sounds of the room. Listening to the sounds as if they're an ambient soundtrack without adding any story or visuals. Don't visualize what's creating sounds. Sounds allow the mind to maintain the spaciousness and openness. The key is to maintain the equilibrium of interest, no matter whether the sounds are pleasant or unpleasant, wanted or intrusive. To not add any 
story or criticism of sounds to see if you can just hear without adding anything to the process of listening. And so another anchor is to recite a very simple, short series of phrases in your mind associated with your intention to develop peace. Peace within, peaceful attitudes towards others. To give you an example, you might recite phrases like, May I feel peaceful. May I feel loved and connected. May I feel at ease. And then extend those wishes to those here and beyond not just human, but all beings. So we use the phrase, may all beings feel peaceful, feel loved and connected and live with ease. Other images and anchors to keep in mind are visualizing a place where you feel safe and just hold that image in mind. The Buddha called the Nimitta. Or you could simply keep in mind all of the sensations of contact with the world around us. Not just the sounds, but the sensation of the body seated on a cushion. The sensation of clothes draped on your body. The sensation of light behind closed eyelids creating random visual effects. So for the second part of the meditation, you can just allow your anchor to move into the background of awareness.
And for the purposes of this practice, I'd like you to bring to mind the image of someone in your life with whom you associate a disappointing relationship or relationship in where you felt you didn't get your needs met. It could be someone that you associate with frustration, abandonment, rejection. (coughs) It could be a romantic relationship or an utterly non-romantic, platonic relationship. Don't repeat the story or the narrative of this relationship. Just hold an image of the individual mind and just see if you can conjure up a feeling of what it was you wanted from this individual or from this relationship that didn't, for whatever reason, come to fruition. A sense of what it was you were hoping for, but left without attaining or the feeling of being heard acknowledge just whenever you have a sense of what those unmet needs were see if you can Connect with just the feeling that's present, the feeling of disappointment, longing, anger, sadness, and most likely a combination of several emotional energies. There's no wrong feeling at all. (coughs) If you can't feel anything, an emotional state, perhaps in the belly or the chest or the throat or emotional states entirely in the mind, a heaviness, sense of lack of energy, a jumpiness in the mind. If you can't connect with the feelings, see if you can ask 
questions to encourage some of the disappointment or sadness or whatever needs to be acknowledged. How does it feel to be not seen by somebody who we want to be seen by or not understood or cared about or have someone (coughs) on the other hand overwhelm our capability to be with them safely. So whatever level of feeling arises, whether very little or something that is discernible, just create a safe container for it to express itself in the body and in the mind. Not wishing we could feel any differently. Allowing ourselves to be in whatever state (coughs) that arises when we think of this disappointing experience in our life. But not going into the story, focusing on the physical experience of emotions and the nonverbal mental experience. And then finally sending a message of kindness from the head to the heart, from the thinking mind to the feeling body. It's okay. I care about these feelings. I won't abandon you. It's okay. I care about my sadness. I care about my losses, my anger, my fear. Just letting go of the image of the person if that's still in mind and just bring an image 
of either yourself or somebody who's very caring, tolerant, loving, bring their image to mind, and just continue reassuring whatever feelings remain. I care about you. Very shortly, we're going to end the meditation. And as always, the request is to, one, take a moment to reflect on the virtue of your practice, the first part of which tonight will be beneficial in developing stress reduction, and developing attention span and memory, and reduce blood pressure. The second part is um, an emotion integration exercise, which is of vast long-term benefits for your emotional health. The beauty of your practice is that even though it is of great benefit to you, it does no harm to any other being. It doesn't exploit or use up the world's resources in any way. It makes you more patient with others. It doesn't addict you to any substances or any addictive behaviors. So your practice is blameless. And how many activities in our lives do we have that are absolutely blameless? So finally, when you hear the sound of the bowl, First, open your eyes, but look at the ground in front of you and integrate sight and color into your embodied awareness so that you don't just look around the room and at all the people, which will mean that you'll lose connection with the body and feelings. We want you to integrate sight into this, <coughs> this richer awareness so that you can come out of a meditation with a much more spacious, open, balanced perception than when you went into it. 